Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Interview episode on the reception of Cleopatra in the Islamic world with Yentl Love. Hi everybody. Joining us today is Yentl Love, creator and writer of the website thequeerclassicist.com. Passionate about the classics and ancient history, she has written a number of articles ranging from sexuality in the Near Eastern and Greco-Roman worlds to reinterpretations of the Iliad. Recently, she has written an article entitled Kalubatra, the Muslim Queen Cleo, discussing the reception of the last queen of the Ptolemaic dynasty, Cleopatra VII, in the Islamic world. Firstly, I'd like to say welcome to the show and thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Could you tell us a bit about yourself regarding your experiences and what led you to your love of the ancient world and the conception of your website? Are there any particular influences from books, teachers, or films? Yes, so growing up, my parents always talked to me a lot about ancient Greek mythology. That was kind of our go-to for story times. (laughs) But then growing up, I used to read a lot. Like many other people, I was obsessed with Percy Jackson books. And we have a series in the UK called Horrible Histories, which is just kind of a kid-friendly way of teaching history. And I used to be obsessed with all of the ancient horrible histories. So that kind of introduced me to the world of classics and ancient history as a kid. And then when I was 16, I was lucky enough to move to a school which offered classical civilizations, which is pretty rare in the UK particularly in like non-private education. It's quite rare to be able to study that, so I was very lucky that I could. And I had two excellent lecturers, Ed and Graham, who really inspired me to carry on with ancient history. I was actually meant to be going to study politics at university, but I went to a museum exhibition actually on one of the Ptolemaic Egyptian dynasties. And I realised that actually I didn't want to study politics, I wanted to carry on doing this. And so I cancelled all my uni places and switched over to Cardiff to study ancient history. So I did my degree in ancient history at Cardiff. Uh, In my second year with my lecturer Alex McCauley, I did a project on Cleopatra where I looked at her in the Islamic tradition, which was something I'd never really looked at before. And that was really interesting to me, kind of became very passionate about that. And generally, a lot of my focus in my undergraduate degree was on the Near East and looking at kind of the Persian empires and the Assyrian empires. And for my undergraduate dissertation, I looked at the similarities between the Persian civilization and a different Eurasian nomadic tribes that were around there at the time and kind of seeing how we can use our knowledge of Eurasian nomads to supplement parts of Persian civilization that we don't really understand very well. From Cardiff, I moved to Exeter to do my master's in classics and ancient history. And through my master's, my focus has generally been on looking at gender and sexuality in the ancient world, all different parts of the ancient world and across time periods as well, although the Hellenistic period I definitely think is one of the most interesting, just in terms of all the different kind of cultures and cultural mixing that you start to see within the Hellenistic period. And as you said, I 
created a website called thequeerclassicist.com. I created this website primarily because as someone who's in classics, I've really seen the kind of exclusivity that the subject has, especially in terms of people think that, oh, you have to, you know, study Latin or Greek in order to be a good ancient historian or classicist, which it really is a minority of people that are ever going to get the opportunity to study Greek and Latin. And it in no way does not having those ancient languages mean that you can't be successful throughout your degrees, because you absolutely can. My Greek and Latin is <laughs> not the best. But yeah, so I kind of wanted to challenge this exclusivity. And also, historically, classics has kind of been dominated, definitely by white people, but often by white men. And so I really wanted to just create a website which made ancient history seem more inviting, just for the general population, but also talk about parts of ancient history that I don't think get brought up enough. You know, on my website, I've looked at how cannabis was used throughout the ancient world, and I've looked at, you know, different conceptions of sexualities in the ancient world, and how sexuality was viewed differently, whether it could be viewed in just kind of a different line as, you know, other personal relationships, whether there was a difference between having a purely sexual relationship and whether that could, how we see that crossing over into other types of the family, particularly in the Near East. So that kind of led me to creating a queer classicist. But also, you know, as the title suggests, I identify as a queer woman. And so the there's a tradition in classics where a lot of the time, you know, people refer to it as straight washing when relationships and different characters which seem like they could be interpreted as being gay are often just assumed to be straight or that we don't understand the dynamics of the relationship now. We're putting our own modern connotations on ancient people, which is something that I found quite frustrating <laughs> as a an LGBT person studying this. So I guess also partially that it was kind of created out of that frustration. But also, you know, I have had relationships with transgender people in the past and ancient history can be a really validating subject for a lot of people. For example, you know, we have historical evidence of people in Iran that are 5,000 years ago in a place called Hassanlu who appear to not be gender non-conforming or, you know, to be biologically male but performing societally as female. And so that's a really interesting and exciting thing to be able to talk about, particularly, you know, in response to increases in uh, transphobia or violence against trans people. It's I think it can be really powerful and important to actually be able to stand up and say, look, here is all the historic ancient evidence we have that LGBT people have always existed. We've got all this amazing evidence and I think more people should be involved in classics. I think that's that's my hope at the end of this, that more people of all different backgrounds will be more interested in classics and will come to classics. And yeah, that's really my motivation behind the queer classicist. Let's talk about Cleopatra the Seventh. 
probably the most famous figure of the Hellenistic world, and certainly among the most well-known figures in all of history. Unsurprisingly, though an often forgotten perspective, her fame carried on into the Islamic world, which occupied much of the Hellenistic and later Roman worlds, following the conquest by the Rashidun and Umayyad Caliphates during the 7th century AD. What sort of sources are we referring to when we talk about an Islamic reception of Cleopatra? Are there any particular periods or regions of the Islamic world where she was more well-known than another? Yeah, so as you've mentioned, the main sources come between the Muslim annexation of Egypt in the 7th century up till the Ottoman conquest in the 16th century. And when we say Islamic reception, that's used as kind of a catch-all phrase to mean anything written in Arabic, even though they might not necessarily have you know, been religiously Muslim, but if they were writing in Arabic, then it's generally thought of as kind of Islamic reception. And so when we're looking at the kind of evidence that we have, a lot of it is the accounts of travellers or geographers who were kind of writing down not only about the physical landscapes that they were visiting, but also about the history of the peoples who were there. What is quite interesting is when you can see the first sort of attempts at deciphering ancient texts or books on alchemy are very popular in this period of Islamic history. It is quite hard, though, when you're looking through to try and find references to, say, Cleopatra, because there are so many different variations of most names. So Cleopatra, I think there are 12 different versions of her name that I came across, and I'm sure there are more, but, you know... People call her Karupa, Alupatra, Iloatra. So it's very hard to actually sometimes find and pinpoint the different places that are talking about Cleopatra. But we can also look at, during the Muslim annexation of Egypt, a lot of Egyptian sources, such as John of Nikia, were writing around then, whereas the Arabic sources normally come in a bit later, around the 9th century CE. So that's kind of the time period that most of our sources about Cleopatra are coming in. You get the earlier Egyptian sources and then followed by the Arabic sources in the 9th century. And mostly at the start, when they first begin writing about her, they're writing in the context of creating histories of Egypt. And she just appears as one of the historical rulers. But later on, people start talking more about her academic talents and just more generally about her as a character. Traditionally, we often view her in the lens of popular culture, spurred on by Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra, or the 1963 Cleopatra film starring Elizabeth Taylor, usually playing the role of a sultry exotic queen, seducing the likes of Julius Caesar or Mark Antony. How does her persona differ in the Islamic tradition? Are there any traits that are emphasized differently? Well, this is a really interesting question because, like you said, in our kind of Western tradition, when most people think about Cleopatra, the first thing they think of is, oh, she was this really beautiful queen. But none of the medieval Arabic sources, at least that I've seen, discuss her beauty in any way. None of them talk about her appearance. Also, in terms of like the whole Cleopatra and Antony, which is particularly famous, you know, in the Western world, thanks to Shakespeare's Cleopatra and Antony play, Antony is only mentioned in one Islamic source, again, that I know of. But when he is mentioned, it's only ever as Cleopatra's soldier, which is quite an interesting parallel to 
how in the West we often see Cleopatra viewed as kind of an accessory of Mark Antony's life, and here you very much see Antony being reduced to just this small supporting character. Instead, the Islamic sources generally focus on her as a mathematician. There are select symbols used in alchemy that are attributed to Cleopatra. And alongside this, you kind of get this development of her being seen as a pharmacologist, someone who created an entire book for medicine and makeup. And she also is remembered as the kind of philosopher queen. We also have in the Arab world, one of the traditions that you see from historical characters like Alexander the Great is that they get what is known as this Arab romance uh, emerges, which is kind of like a mythologized version of a real life character. And the only one that we can link Cleopatra to and say maybe this was about her is the Arab romance of Karuba. In this, the, it's about a famous princess whose father is a tyrant and famously Cleopatra VII's father was a tyrannical character who had to be sent out of Alexandria and their heartland. But so Cleopatra or the Karuba is supposedly this smart and witty young princess who orchestrates the death of her father and in order to take control and then doubles the salaries of soldiers, elevates ranks of priests and scholars, and goes on this massive building campaign where she restores and enlarges temples. And so we don't know that this Karuba necessarily is Cleopatra, but it is interesting to see the parallels because that's one of the things that Islamic scholars really focus on is her architectural campaigns and how she completely kind of revolutionized a lot of the building work around her. So it appears that these might have, uh, that Karuba might have been based on Cleopatra's heritage. We don't really know, but definitely in the Islamic tradition, the emphasis is always on her kind of academic qualities, her brains and her strategy, what she did as a ruler and her appearance really isn't mentioned at all. To some extent, it is arguable that the various Islamic caliphates, kingdoms and empires, either occupying or bordering the traditional lands of the Roman Empire, can also be considered heirs to the Greco-Roman tradition, alongside the medieval European world. Was there anything culturally or socially distinct about the various Islamic civilizations that affected their image of Cleopatra compared to that of Latin Europe or the surviving Eastern Roman or Byzantine Empire? Yeah, so if you look historically at the kind of medieval Islamic world, what emerges as kind of a, a big societal difference is that the scholarly world and the world of academia in the medieval Arabic world was much more open to the idea of powerful women. So various Islamic states we know had powerful female leaders, such as Queen Zenobia, who actually styled herself as Cleopatra the New. And in the medieval Arabic world, the idea of women ruling wasn't a surprising thing, because as I've said, many women did rule and many more formed a large portion of the scientific and intellectual community. And this dates back to in the Quran, where uh, the Prophet Muhammad advocated the rights of women and men to equally seek knowledge. And we know that uh, between 700 and 1800, 
CE, there were over a thousand female religious scholars who studied, who got degrees. And so generally it wasn't considered surprising for a woman to be smart and powerful or to, you know, be an intellectual ruler. That wasn't a surprising concept and it had been happening for many, many years in the medieval Islamic world. Whereas over in Europe, when we see Cleopatra for the first time in Europe, it's really in the Roman period where kind of comes to a head where Augustus is trying to take power and Cleopatra emerges as the love interest of one of his rivals. And so it's obvious that he that he's going to start a campaign of kind of anti-Cleopatra sentiment because she represents all that is kind of foreign or alien or everything that is wrong with Mark Antony, his rival. And so from this kind of denigration of Cleopatra, it then, the story in the Roman Empire and then English kind of medieval society, that propaganda is never challenged. There are patriarchal cultures that follow on from ancient Rome, but the idea that Augustus set in stone about this overly powerful, overly sexual woman who orchestrated the downfall of this powerful general Mark Antony. That is never questioned by the later cultures. And in fact, if you look over, you know, in England and Europe, as we see the rise of Christianity, one of the, you know, kind of tenets of Christianity is sexual morality. And so Cleopatra kind of begins to take on this sort of like Eve aspect in the whole Adam and Eve and she is the, the temptress. She was the temptation that caused the downfall of uh, essentially Egyptian rule. And so, yeah, you have this really big divide between what is happening in kind of the European world. And then a very similar point in time, you have what is kind of known as the golden age of Islam, where it's much more equal society. And so that really impacts in the, in the treatment of Cleopatra throughout history. Both, I think it is definitely down to the fact that they weren't kind of the inheritors of Augustus's legacy that he had passed down. And so they didn't already have that kind of negative narrative around Cleopatra to have to actively challenge. And so they were starting from a very different point when they were considering her historic attribute. Whereas in Europe and, you know, the Byzantine Empire, Augustus's narrative was never really challenged that much. Augustus won. And, you know, as they say, the winners write history. And so um, it just emerged that she was this awful, sex-obsessed, crazy female leader who caused the downfall of the Egyptian dynasty. Although, obviously, she was not part of the original Egyptian dynasty, but that's kind of the way that it appeared. And even when she then appears in later European literature, like in Shakespeare, the story isn't ever about her as a leader. It's about her romance and her love life. And so that really is something that really sticks with Cleopatra in the European tradition, whereas it really seems to be forgotten in the medieval Islamic world. We certainly still have quite a ways to go in the show before we get to Cleopatra. But in the meantime, for those listeners that are interested, are there any particular books or works on Cleopatra you personally recommend? or anything on the ancient world in general. I have only just read the biography written by Dwayne W. Roller in the past few days, but considering that there's a huge amount out there, I wanted to see if you might have any insights. Yeah, so uh, that book that you mentioned, the one by Dwayne Roller, is a really good place to start looking about Cleopatra. 
I definitely use that a lot in my studies. But I would also recommend Stacey Schiff's Cleopatra. I think it's called Cleopatra A Life. It's a really engaging and enjoyable read, but it is also really well researched. And so I would definitely recommend that one. As well, if you want to learn more about how um, we can use ancient Islamic or medieval Islamic writings to understand ancient Egypt, Okasha El Daly wrote a book called Egyptology, The Missing Millennium, Ancient Egypt in Medieval Arabic Writings. And that is just a really kind of a source book of all of these amazing sources that we have on ancient Egypt from the Islamic world that don't really get mentioned very much. So I would really recommend that. But it's quite a it's quite an academic book and quite heavy to read. It took me a long time to get through it. And so for a more enjoyable read, I would definitely suggest uh, Stacey Schiff's Cleopatra. But if you're just starting out uh, learning about the ancient world, then uh, something like SPQR by Mary Beard is a really good history of Rome all the way from, you know, the myths about its founding all the way through the Roman Empire. And that is as well very enjoyable to read. Um, and it's one that I continuously go back to if once a more kind of academic book than the two books which I have never put down throughout all of my different university degrees are the themes in different society and cultures. So there's a themes in Roman society and culture book, which is edited by Matt Gibbs and Milorad Nikolic and Pauline Rippat, which is really excellent. It covers everything like religion, uh, gender, sexuality, just a general history, looking at the army, just got everything you might need. And there's equally another one, which is themes in Greek society and culture, which is by Alison Glazebrook and Christina Vester. And that is equally as good. Um, they're both quite expensive, though. But if you are, you know, going into academia, then I would say those two are really worth getting. Those sound like fantastic recommendations, and I'll make sure to include them in the show notes for the episode on my website. And I think we are just about ready to wrap up our discussion. And once again, thanks for joining me. Is there anything you would wish to plug or suggest if listeners wanted to know more about your work or any upcoming articles you could tease? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on the show. As you said, yeah, my website, thequeerclassicist.com, and I am also on Instagram and Twitter, uh, my Instagram is at the queer classicist and my Twitter is at queer classicist. I'm really excited about doing some more of my how to understand series. Uh, recently, I did a long post on how to understand the Iliad, which I really enjoyed and got quite a popular feedback for. So I'm looking forward to doing some more of that, looking at Near Eastern creation myths. Um, but the upcoming article on my website is going to be looking at um, ancient Africa and in particular how there was a tradition of Nubian warrior queens, which I'm really loving researching and I'm looking forward to sharing online. Well, I'm very much looking forward to checking those out. And again, I'll make sure to include all the links to Yentl's website and social media accounts in the podcast description and the episode notes, along with the book recommendations. So, until next time, you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs>